0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. The following program is sponsored by the Association of the United States Army.
1: Today on Government Matters. As China looks to expand its influence in the Pacific, the Army is making sure it's ready for a potential conflict in one of the world's largest regions. And the Army's working on transforming its technology and how it operates. We discuss the challenges in making that happen. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gurges.
1: This is Government Matters the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Eighth Theater Sustainment Command controls logistics and sustainment for the more than 100,000 troops in the Indo-Pacific. U.S. Army Major General Jared Helwig leads that command. We spoke to him at the AUSA exhibition on October 10th. General, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks, Mimi, appreciate it.
1: You know, when people think about the Indo-Pacific, there's a lot of oceans, Um, They think Navy. Does the Army really have a role here? Or is this Navy's fight?
2: So the the Army definitely has a role in the Pacific. uh, And, you know, specifically uh, when it comes to logistics, because there's multiple places uh, in the Pacific where, you know, we have to put um, sustainment and having that capability is uh, essential to any kind of fight. And, you know, the joint force is a truly joint force. It's got to be not just a Navy or air, but also land power because land power is joint power for sure.
1: The Pacific is unique in that land masses are really far apart. What's the strategy for dealing with those long distances?
2: So we definitely have to look at where we position uh, supplies and material, uh, ensure that we have it uh, forward positioned in places that we can uh, take it, uh, use at time of need. Uh, we need to definitely um, be a good partner with, our, uh, with the nations in, in the region uh, and, you know, build those coalitions that are so critical uh, for the U.S. and for the U.S. Army and for the joint force.
1: In, in talking about the joint force, obviously you have to integrate, right? So what are the challenges? How are you thinking about the integration of those forces?
2: Yeah, that's a great question because integration is key to what we do. Uh, across the joint force. So we have to be able to have a uh, joint, uh, common operating picture of what we are able to see across the the logistics supply chain. We have to work really uh, with our enterprise partners like Transcom and DLA to ensure that we're all linked together and see the same site picture. And then we have to understand uh, what each service brings to the fight uh, when it comes to sustainment and ensure that we have a good uh, integration of each of the capabilities. No service can do it on their own. And so we have to see how we can do that uh, as an integrated joint force across those different lines of effort.
1: Your command works closely with international allies. Uh, One of the largest exercises is Talisman Sabre and that's working bilaterally with Australia. Tell me about how that uh, exercise is set up and the purpose.
2: Yeah, so we're really excited about Talisman Sabre. It's it's been an exercise, that has been conducted uh, every year. But uh, this year in particular, we're gonna get an opportunity to really work on uh, logistics. And so uh, we'll have the opportunity to really pull a thread on some of those things I already talked about, uh, integrate the joint force into the operation, uh, and create those synergies that we know we need uh, for future uh, operations.
1: What about working? um, What about logistics in a contested environment? You know, logistics is hard any day, but when you're in uh, a degraded environment, then what?
2: Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, uh, and it's something that we have to continue uh, to build uh, redundancy, and then also ensure that we're able to uh, really empower leaders forward to make decisions that maybe traditionally we've made, uh, you know, farther up the echelon. Uh, across the joint force, so that they're able to um, execute uh, independently if we're, you know, cut off from the ability to communicate effectively.
1: You've talked about pre-positioned supplies. There's also the idea of supplies and weapons being combat ready on arrival. Talk about your initiatives around that.
2: Yes, this is something that we uh, definitely uh, continue to look at to practice. Uh, how do we ensure that when we uh, move those pre-positioned stocks? Uh, we move them in a way that uh, optimizes the, their ability to go right into uh, any kind of contested environment that we might be in, uh, and so that's a critical part of what we we want to re- rehearse and practice going forward.
1: And when you do rehearse and and practice that, what are some of the the lessons that you take away from that, and how do you take those lessons and then operationalize that?
2: Yeah, so we look at uh, you know how long that takes, you know how we how we do it effectively. Uh, how we ensure there's a seamless transition between different uh, echelons in the in the fight, uh, and how we ensure that the you know what we do uh, integrates with the joint force uh, and our coalition uh, allies in some sense, so that we have a good picture of how that's going to look when the when those uh, when that equipment uh, arrives uh, at its destination.
1: Turning now to Ukraine, one of the uh, Russian army's failures has been logistics and sustainment. What are some of your observations from watching that?
2: I think uh, you know there'd be a couple. Uh, first off, the the criticality of munitions and having the munitions that you need at the time uh, that you need it. Uh, you know, building that supply base, you know, from the from the industrial base to the uh, to the forward positioning, is is critical. Uh, and then you know, I talked. I've already talked about it a little bit, but you know, just to reiterate the the importance of having equipment and uh, supplies preposition forward uh, to give us the opportunity to uh, have it uh, when we need it. And when we do that, you know, uh, the way we do that really is with our uh, operation pathways and the exercises that we do allows us to get into um, different uh, places and work with our coalition partners to, to uh, put those uh, supplies in places that give us uh, an advantage.
1: I wonder if you were surprised when you watched that uh, war unfold, especially in the early months um, how badly the Russians handled logistics?
2: Uh, you know, candidly, I thought that, you know, it, it, was, it was surprising. But, you know, it just reiterates the fact uh, that sometimes, you know, particularly uh, in the last 20 years in a coin fight, it's been less about um, logistics in the sense that we've been able to move uh, supplies at our kind of pace and timing. Uh, when you look at this and, you know, potentially the future, you really have to ensure You have a great understanding of uh, logistics and its integral role as a warfighting function uh, with the other warfighting functions that are out there.
1: Especially in the Pacific with those big distances, as we mentioned.
2: That's right. Yep. The tyrannated distance in the Pacific is definitely a a big factor we have to work through uh, in logistics there.
1: All right. General Helwig, thanks so much for being with with us on the show.
2: Thank you so much, Mimi. I appreciate it.
1: Up next on Government Matters, we sit down with the man in charge of the Army's acquisition, logistics, and technology. He shares what he's doing to speed up wait times for new weapons and the new technology he's got his eyes on. We'll be right back. The theme of this year's AUSA conference was Building the Army of 2030. We spoke with Doug Bush, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, about how he's making sure the Army can get there. Doug, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So the army sending a lot of weapons, obviously, to Ukraine. Does the industrial base have the ability to reconstitute those weapons?
3: It does, Uh, and that's a combination of just, you know, uh, American businesses being flexible and innovative, but also the government having a capability that we keep, the organic industrial base that's there for this reason, to allow us to ramp up and fill the short-term needs while commercial industry comes in over the top for a longer term conflict to help. Uh, but it's not without its challenges. Uh, going from uh, low, kind of low rates of production to max rates uh, is absolutely doable, but just does take time. So managing this period we're in where we're ramping up while still sending a lot on a monthly basis is uh, our challenge right now.
1: How is your office supporting that ability for industry to resupply?
3: So the first part starts with Congress. So, Um, Congress has been very generous with the funding and also critically, they've given us the funding in a flexible way that we've been able to use it not just to buy weapons, but also to invest in industrial capacity. So that's a partnering with industry to expand production capabilities where they put in money, we put in money. So that, that is a huge difference this time than just our routine business of just buying weapons. The second part is contracting. So we've been able to use all kinds of authorities, some we used during COVID to go much faster than normal. So that gets money flowing into industry, which enables them to invest and actually get these production lines cranked up. So it's uh, really a uh, requires a lot of cooperation from both parts of the government, Congress and the executive.
1: What about working with allies is there something that uh, you can do to take advantage of their industrial capacity.
3: Absolutely. So that's the critical There's kind of three legs of the stool There's ramping up our production using our allies and then also getting donations from allies. So three parts of getting weapons to Ukraine. Uh, with regard to the allies. Yes absolutely. Uh, the United States of course has a huge economy. We can do a lot but so do our partners especially in Europe but not just Europe. So. We are already procuring uh, artillery ammunition, for example, from them that goes directly to Ukraine. Uh, We are working to do more of that. So working with allies to find where they've got production capacity that supplements ours has been vital. Um, Kind of a term I've used or tried to use is uh, the United States is the arsenal of democracy, but we really need an arsenal of democracies because we need others to help. It doesn't have to all be us. So that's been really productive right now. I think we're seeing great returns from that.
1: You know, a big issue for industrial capacity is supply chain to make sure that you've got every part that you need where you need it. What are your initiatives around that?
3: So it starts with being able to see the supply chain in depth. So uh, actually, one of our most involved in this conflict program executive offices, they do ammunition, such as artillery ammunition, has for years had, I think, the best program to see the supply chain in depth, all the way down to precursor chemicals that go into ammunition manufacturing step one. Step two is harder, which is doing something about it. So we know where our single points of failure are or risk areas. So what we're doing in a lot of cases is developing second sources for those materials. So you're not relying on one factory, sometimes one building in one place for the whole supply chain. There's a cost to that. So it's more efficient to have one supply source, but you have to now account for risk. We saw it during COVID that illustrated that. And now we're seeing it here. Uh, <clears throat> you know, one one industrial accident or one you know si- situation in one plant. You don't want to be completely dependent on that.
1: How has your office supported the Army's pivot from fighting wars in Afghanistan and Iraq to near-peer conflicts?
3: Sure. So really, we uh, our job in the Army is to actually develop and uh, acquire the systems we've worked closely with, and it really started with, my predecessor, Dr. Bruce Jetty, previous administration, and General Mike Murray at Army Futures Command. They, they, working with their secretaries of the Army, Esper and McCarthy, set the six new modernization priorities in place. We're continuing those. Those new priorities are really oriented on great power competition, fighting potentially a country like Russia or China, versus uh, counterinsurgency. So really, following through on those programs is our contribution to that shift. Uh, I would say, however, that the Middle East is still there. We still have troops there. We are still supporting them as well. For example, with counter uh, UAS, counter unmanned systems types of technology. So we haven't completely lost sight of that. We still have troops around the world. But really the shift to the new big platforms, for example, helicopters, tanks, longer range artillery, that's our main focus. And the communications network that goes with that
1: you know logistics is going to be very challenging in the Pacific given the large distances does the army currently have the right equipment currently to have that logistical support and the resupply necessary for the Pacific operations
3: so we do have uh, a lot of force structure we have a lot of prepositioned stocks for example Uh, we have floating prepositioned stocks we've got the logistics infrastructure in place but I think uh, General Daily, for example, my partner at Army Material Command, would tell you that it's designed for a little bit less of a contested environment. So we have to invest in more capability and assume that those supply you know, chains will be under attack. So that's an ongoing uh, effort. Uh, that's one of the Secretary's big priorities is to move the dial a bit, invest in those long-range logistics capabilities, watercraft, um, new aircraft that we're already doing, um, but also, critically, the information systems that underlie that. So you know where your supplies are, and if you have to divert, you can divert quickly um, because of where the enemy is and what they're doing. So that's a major effort going forward.
1: And you're gonna be continuing your acquisition strategy to get, to get the Army there.
3: It is, it's, um, it's a question of priorities. So uh, you know the Army doesn't have unlimited funds, but I think uh, we clearly recognize the Army's role in the Pacific, one of the main roles is theater logistics. The Army provides that for the joint force. So uh, that's not something we're walking away from and actually it's probably gonna be an area of additional investment in the years ahead.
1: All right, quick pause here and then we'll continue our conversation. Okay. I'm back now with Doug Bush. He's Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics and Technology. Doug, you know, Army acquisitions take a long time for high tech systems. Small businesses can go bankrupt waiting for that funding. What progress have you made to shorten those timelines and what additional changes are you planning for the future?
3: Sure. So, and acquisition at speed is really my number one priority because that's what I'm being told the system wants, DOD wants, and Congress wants. So, we're absolutely focused on that. So one thing is we are using new authorities we got from Congress a few years ago that are now finally in place that allow us to go much faster to start programs. So it just takes away some of the bureaucracy and some of the steps you traditionally had to go through to get started, so that's number one. Um, Number two is, I think, a really good approach of doing more real prototypes earlier. So quickly get to real prototypes, let soldiers try them, you get a much better understanding of what's possible and how much work's left to be done to get to a real version than with just PowerPoint or just computer models. Um, but having said that, uh, digital engineering is a critical part of going faster. The more you can do at high fidelity in computer modeling, which is where industry's going with a lot of their engineering work, also facilitates that. So it's really just using the authorities from Congress, working with Congress on letting us be flexible with our approaches that's been the number one thing to allow us to go faster.
1: You used those authorities for the next generation squad weapon. We did. Tell us about that.
3: So that was a rapid prototyping effort, 27 months from start to having a system selected for production that we're about to go in now. So I would contrast this with our long effort to get a new pistol, which took much longer, um, and uh, that was comparatively simpler because it was just a pistol. This effort, uh, you know, there's it's a great example of where we have innovative defense industry and we have great firearms manufacturers in this country, they've already done a lot of the R&D. So we just need to take advantage of that. That's a way to shortcut the system instead of like seven years, get things into production in you know two or three.
1: And are you able to scale that across the board in the Army or was that a one-off? It,
3: it gets more challenging the more complicated the systems are. So, But we are trying to use a rapid prototyping approach, for example, for our new Vehicle that will replace the Bradley Fighting Vehicle, currently called the uh, Optionally manned Fighting Vehicle. So that's a big system. Um, and that's a, that kind of system is where it's more challenging, but still possible. Uh, it's a five-year window for that rapid prototyping. We wanna go faster than that, but if we can actually get five years and then get into production, um, that's a huge improvement over kind of the 10-year timelines that are more common. So um, I can't say I'm declaring victory yet. There's a lot of work to do but that's the idea.
1: How, are, how is your office supporting JADC2 development? Um, and, and what are the current challenges that you're facing?
3: Sure, so uh, our office, we work, working with the Army on from their requirement standpoint on networking, you know, we acquire and develop all the actual networking gear. Um, and unlike a lot of other programs that are kind of big programs like a helicopter or a tank, the network is composed of really dozens or almost a hundred or more subsystems. And a lot of it is commercial technology. So we put that together. We work with Army Futures Command in particular because they're doing a series of exercises to explore the Army's role in JADC2 and how we can do it. Um, So really uh, staying flexible is the most important thing because the private sector technology there is moving so quickly that we've got to avoid getting, you know, committed to one path and one technology that in a few years won't uh, won't be the latest thing.
1: And, and you alluded to this a little bit, which was the digital transformation strategy, right? You talked about digital engineering. Um, there's also DevSecOps. What's your strategy around that?
3: Yeah, so uh, I mentioned speed of acquisition. My number two thing is software reform. So we've got to move the army from a 20th century software model to a 21st century. And uh, I brought in additional software talent. My principal deputy, for example, his name's Young Bang, came from the private sector software industry. And he's leading the effort on my behalf to fundamentally reset how we do software acquisition. So that includes using the new software pathway. That's one of the new authorities granted by Congress. Uh, The Army traditionally would do software the way we would buy, you know, artillery shells. We would develop it, field it, which is not a term industry uses. And then we would sustain it as a separate activity, also not a term industry uses. It's really all three things at the same time. You have to develop it put it in the hands of people, and then keep improving it basically forever so you can keep it up to date with cyber and other things. So shifting to Army that model, it's not gonna be easy, but I think people are seeing the fruits of it now. We've got eight programs using that new pathway.
1: Part of your title is technology, so I wanna ask you about the new technologies that you're gonna be investing in, short-term and long-term.
3: Yeah, so this is where uh, uh, Army Futures Command, they execute our S&T plan um, that I oversee. Has done great work and is doing great work so one example is biotechnology so the army is made up of soldiers so fundamentally the army is people so technologies that support soldier health and performance is a huge thing um, quantum computing while there's a lot of private sector research in that we have to be in there as well um, uh, artificial intelligence another area where uh, we are aware of like a ton of great work in the private sector that we have to be looped into as well and finally The Army does have technologies the private sector doesn't really want to develop. So like really exotic new armor materials for tanks or armored fighting vehicles that are dramatically lower weight, for example. That's research we're doing um, that will enable future systems.
1: And finally, are there any technologies that you're testing at Project Convergence this year?
3: Yeah, so there's quite a few underway. A lot of them are network technologies. So focused around solving uh, JADC2 operational problems, how do you connect? Um, in a contested electronic environment. How do you connect sensors to shooters so fast that you're inside the enemy's ability to respond? That's the main goal. Um, but there's also a lot of robotics and unmanned vehicles being demonstrated out there. So those are two areas, um, the ground and air robots that I'm really optimistic about. Industry, if you walk the floor here at AUSA, there's a ton of investment there. We need to need to take advantage of it. And there's a lot more we could do in both of those areas. And those are a major part of. PC twenty uh, two as well.
1: All right. Well, when that happens, you'll have to come back and tell us what happens course, and what the results too. were. That'd be great. Doug, thanks so much for being on
3: the program. Thanks for having me.
1: That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at eight and ten thirty on WJLA twenty four seven News and Sunday mornings at ten thirty on Seven News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: The previous program was sponsored by the Association of the United States Army. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
4: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional. Uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today, and has as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband originally satellite broadband but now managed networks and manage broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite of course.
1: Well tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service.
4: It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it. Um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4 that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government.
1: Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning.
4: We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services, it takes sort of the guesswork out of it